0: If you were a child of the 1980s, you might remember the classic MTV video, Somebody's Watching Me, performed by Rockwell, the son of Motown founder Barry Gordy. With its atmospheric visuals and guest vocals by Michael Jackson and his brother Jermaine, the video enjoyed heavy rotation, propelling the song to the top five on the charts in about a dozen countries. But what gives the song its staying power is its constant refrain, I always feel like somebody's watching me. How prescient an early 80s pop song is when considering today's data-inundated world, where everything you do online is scrutinized, measured, and parsed. And while organizations that collect that data can derive great benefit from those insights, they also face great risks as regulators and litigators race to catch up with new and stronger privacy laws. I'm your host, Paul Thies, and in this episode of If When, I discuss data privacy with data privacy expert Michelle Dennity, who has served as a chief privacy officer at Cisco, McAfee, and Sun Microsystems, and Daryl Collette, Senior Counsel, Data Privacy and Security Intellectual Property at Jacobs. In the episode that follows, we discuss the current pace of privacy regulation post-GDPR, what are some of the most pressing privacy concerns that business leaders need to be aware of today and how the pandemic has impacted the data privacy landscape? Michelle and Daryl, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm looking forward to talking with both of you about data privacy. I think that it's a, uh, a very timely topic given everything that's going on uh, and everything that's being discussed, uh, especially in this quote-unquote post-pandemic world we find ourselves in. So. Uh, Start us off, Michelle. I'd like to begin with you. Uh, you and I had actually connected a couple of years ago, right around the time when the GDPR was coming into effect back in, in May of 2018. And um, you know, at that time, you were you were in your role at Cisco, and we talked about the ramifications of GDPR. I wanted to kind of start us off with today's discussion, asking you know, how would you characterize the current pace of privacy regulation post-GDPR, have things accelerated, have they slowed, or have they stayed the course?
1: Yeah, I think as far as new legislation, I think it's, it's been a mixed bag, right? So California, ballot initiative, quick burn, turnaround, we have CCPA now, bam, there's a new mm-hmm. ballot initiative. Um, I actually am trying to talk to Alistair about it today. Um, will it be go the same course i probably will it probably will go to the to the closest to the ballot possible and then the legislature will codify something to avoid mm-hmm. a referendum um, so i think that's an interesting way to do lawmaking that's a whole different podcast yeah. i think the, the regulations and the certainty out of gdpr since 2018 have gotten stronger we've seen lots of rip-roaringly huge eye-watering fines coming against sort of the usual suspects, the large social networks. But we've Mm -hmm. seen a little more moderation, I think, for for SMBs and and other types of industry. So I think we still are at the beginning. The the most frequent finable offense is organizations who don't even have lawful process or or legal ability to process the data in the first place. And that's, again, it's a very European concept. And then, of course, down to our south, I'm, I'm sitting in the US right now. Um, mm-hmm. LGPD, the gift that keeps on giving, it was supposed to go into effect in February. Then it was supposed to go, in fact, in August. And then they said, no, 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 we'll do this in 2021 after the pandemic. And then, boom, bam, all last week, uh, they said, guess what? LGPD now and it has mm-hmm. extraterritorial reach and it has huge fines it's very similar to gdpr in its scope and reach so it's a bonanza out there for privacy lawyers for sure
0: mm-hmm. now that's the uh that's the brazilian reg- uh legislation is that right
1: Yes, yeah, sorry yes that's in brazil okay
0: okay okay that's what i thought so now you know and i remember you know particularly when the the ramp up was coming for gdpr of course it was it was very european focused but if you are a U.S. business that did business in Europe or, you know, Asian business or any business for that matter, you could be stung, too, if you were not compliant. And, you know, and then we had, you know, like you mentioned, the social networks and, and whatnot. And there was some interest. And I remember at a time, you know, Mark Zuckerberg was going before Congress and all of that. And so it seemed like there might be some momentum to get something going here in the U.S., of course california is kind of leading the way in some of the in that charge but do you anticipate data privacy regulations in the us will more closely follow more rigorous models you know found in other geographies
1: i i mean nothing's going to happen under this administration it's so hopelessly deadlocked and partisan and crazy um but will we see federal protection in the U.S.? I believe we will and we must because we've started to recognize that not only is it a human right and and unlike other pandemics and and financial crises in the past where you heard, Mm. let's have security, not privacy. We finally have evolved to understand that security is kind of the how and privacy is the what. So we've mm-hmm. understood also that our data is inextricably linked with our commerce as well as our human rights. So I think we've both parties on both sides of this sort of political spectrum, whether you wanna be individualistic or collectivist, everyone can agree that data is fundamental to our digital society. And so mm-hmm. as such, I think we're gonna see a lot more momentum and a lot more debate over what does a US Law look like replicating a civil law concept like GDPR wholesale doesn't Mm. work in a common law context, but there are a lot of principles and a lot of lessons learned from GDPR and the Canadian laws and the Australians and the New Zealands and pretty much everyone else but us.
0: Mm, mm, That's interesting, And, and you know, especially I mean, as the discussion around things like contact tracing ramp up and. You know people wanting to know like kind of where you're at and who you're you're meeting with and your health data and that sort of thing It, it seems to be you know pretty germane to what we're talking about today, Daryl, um what are some of the most pressing privacy concerns that business leaders need to be aware of today?
2: Sure, yeah, I mean, as a threshold comment, I'd say that you know uh, any leader. Um, really, in any business, just needs to realize that these are, these are not, uh, you know, flavors of the month. These laws are not coming uh, and passing through quickly, right? The, this isn't a trend. This is here to stay. There was a lot of hope that certain laws, such as the GDPR, would be a, a centralizing way for compliance teams um, to implement, um, you know, the necessary requirements to comply. However, you know, e, even within the GDPR landscape, we're seeing a very fractured interpretation of what that law means on a jurisdiction, jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis. So the point is, I would just tell executive leaders these laws are becoming more complicated, they're becoming more fractured from a compliance standpoint. Uh, it's important to, to realize that these are not just legal issues or IT technology issues, but it requires business leaders to have a holistic approach you know, and have a a privacy program that, you know, you bring in all the right stakeholders. Like for us at Jacobs, you know, most of our personal data processing is in the HR space, right? We're really not a external commercial facing entity where we amass a significant amount of consumer data. That's just not what we do. However, you know, we have over 50,000 employees globally in over 40 countries, and that's already a very complex matrix, you know, of how you comply with all those privacy laws. So for us, you know, I I think our business leaders have done a good job of being responsible. And bringing together a privacy program where we have HR, we have IT security, you know, we bring in our insurance team, right? To help Mm -hmm. us make sure we have the right uh, type of risk mitigations in place. So I would tell the business leaders, it's a holistic approach to to deal with it. And the other thing I tell them is, you know, the laws are going to stay, they're going to become more complex. And what Mm -hmm. we should do is use it as a differentiator. You know, embrace privacy, use it as a sales and marketing opportunity, because I think the businesses, um, some of the larger businesses are already doing that. And I think it does make a difference. I think the average end user and the average employee wants to know that their data is just reasonably being protected. You know, so mm, yeah, that'd be no, my advice.
0: No, that's excellent advice. And, you know, so, so now here we are in this COVID world. And like I I alluded to, you know, with contact tracing and that sort of thing. I mean, it's it's kind of changed the dynamics some or or the potential is there to change the dynamics. Uh, And so, Daryl, how do you see the pandemic has impacted the data privacy landscape?
2: Sure. Well, I think, um, you know, as Michelle mentioned and as you already commented, Paul, it's it's interesting. These privacy laws were already hitting us from, you know, uh, all kinds of different jurisdictions. And they were already complex, and I think people were already sensitive to these issues, but then you throw a pandemic on top of that, and Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, I think it grounds a lot of these lofty ideas into very, you know, everyday, real-world, practical concerns right like you mentioned contact tracing that contact tracing has been an effective method right to kind of monitor the movement of people there's no Mm -hmm. doubt if we really wanted to we could track everyone and have a much better idea of who's in contact with who and you know and all that but 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 you counterbalance that with the average uh citizen's concern about well you know is that worth it right do i really want that type of intrusion on my day-to-day life Mm -hmm. you know so, so it is an interesting balancing uh, analysis. But but I think the pandemic has obviously raised overall uh, concerns about government tracking in particular. You know, the Europeans, I think, themselves are trying to embrace or figure out what's the right solution for a broader contact tracing across Europe. You know, as you're probably familiar here in the U.S., Apple and Google have, you know, they're in the process of de- developing a joint type of uh, mobile device architecture that would allow anonymized contract tracing um, mm-hmm. that could then be offered to governments. Um, so there's just there's a lot of interesting technology developments that are going on. But I think if anything, the pandemic has hit home just a very practical and grounded issue. You know that, that just brings all these to the to the forefront.
0: Now, well, do you see like data privacy regulations and protections easing?
2: No. The- <laughs> no. Next question. Answer, no. <laughs> yeah, 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 That's probably the easiest question in this whole podcast. Yeah. No, I think I think what we'll see, like Michelle said, is I think we mm-hmm. will see at some point a a a more robust discussion in the United States. I am actually optimistic that we will have a U.S. federal privacy law mm-hmm. uh, in the next couple of years. So, and, and a lot of that's driven. Again, based on the fact that we have states now doing their own things, right? So we have Cal- mm-hmm. California, which is mm-hmm. which has taken the lead in some respect. But then we have Illinois, which has one of the most aggressive biometric privacy laws in the country. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we have a very fractured environment. And, and that fracturing is actually, in a way, a healthy thing. It kind of allows a lot of testing of different ways of doing it, you know? So mm-hmm. there is a benefit in a, in a, in a somewhat decentralized like beta testing process that our states engage in. But at some point, you know, there will be enough industry demand that the, the mm-hmm. feds will need to come in and, and harmonize it. And, and I, I, I do think that's gonna happen. So yeah, these laws will continue to expand. Yeah.
0: Okay. And then Michelle, uh, how can data collection be safely anonymized and yet still deliver a robust enough picture to promote public safety?
1: Oh, wow. This is a whole class on privacy <laughs> engineering. I think, so I'll, I'll put it in sort of the, the basket approach is, You mm-hmm. can either have the swimming pool approach or the concrete hole approach. And what I mean by that is if you only look at risk and you say, can it ever be anonymized because scary mm-hmm. things going to happen? You're basically mm-hmm. saying, wow, I've got this concrete hole. What, what, what could I do to make it safe? And of course mm-hmm. you can fill in the hole uh, mm-hmm. or you can put water in the hole. And mm-hmm. if your objective is to just fill in the hole, you can just clamp everything down and not do anything. And if it is to build a swimming pool, which is the swimming pool outcome approach, you can mm-hmm. go in deciding what information do you need to collect for the purpose? What is the context and the context? isn't just a straightforward transaction of, you know, is it medical data, for example, Mm -hmm. that the medical data that my daughters and I share with each other is not covered under HIPAA and some of these legal frameworks. So if Mm -hmm. you're taking a, what is lawful and let's anonymize the things that haven't been enumerated or have been enumerated in a law, you're taking Mm -hmm. the concrete whole approach. If instead you're saying, is my objective to understand in this School system, school-aged minor children who probably have legal guardians in in, in the best cases, and mm-hmm. how do we get everyone to understand what our objective is? Is our objective to get the kids to socialize at school sometimes, to get them sitting in a classroom, to get them you know off to a boarding school alone, to try to just you know focus on the education and the and the socialization without contamination of parents and others. Once you've identified your objective, then concepts like anonymization can be very, very helpful. You know, there's, and, and there's starting to be, and this is the exciting thing that I've been focused on for the last several months, the mm-hmm. rise of privacy technology, and it's beyond security sequestration. It's beyond anonymization. It's beyond identity management. It's in, it's beyond encryption, encryption. Incorporates these concepts so for example for anonymization and i'll put that in bunny quotes that your pod listeners can't hear so if you're listening in headphones imagine me with bunny quotes anonymization is very very difficult to achieve in this environment with so much data and so much analytical uh capability however there are companies like privitar for example founded in the uk they're now in the united states Mm -hmm. They segment out and they they show that information that's sitting in large data lakes has been processed in a way to clip off known identifiers that doesn't anonymize your data perfectly for clever bunnies who want to combine and mix and match, but at Mm -hmm. least an attempt to say, here is a group of data that have at least been removed of some of their credentials so that you can quickly and efficiently do analytics in context. I think we're going to see more of these specialty privacy programs coming along where Mm -hmm. you have reporting type companies like one trust you have Privatar really looking at anonymization or pseudonymization of large mm-hmm. data stacks you have little companies coming up specifically focusing on um, on application data management and tracking i my favorite i just talked to last week a company called layer nine really focused on data in motion so you mm-hmm. can figure out not just is the encryption encrypted end-to-end, which means nothing. If your encryption is encrypted end-to-end, complete, full stop, that means you have filled in the pool. You've put dirt in there, and you've locked it in concrete blocks. At some point, information becomes unencrypted so that you you can manage it. But it's a great tool while it's sitting in storage at rest, while it's in transit, et cetera. So figuring out how these things contextually build for an outcome is the heart of privacy engineering.
0: Mm, that's interesting. You know, and and I, I tend to think that organizations and this is this is going down a rabbit hole, but I tend to think that organizations, especially in this age of artificial uh, intelligence and machine learning, and how critical data is to informing those training training sets, they're going to have they're going to they're incentivized if we're being honest, to find ways to share data amongst themselves, because that's how you feed the AIs and make them more powerful. So data privacy, of course, is gonna be really important, but it it seems like they're being incentivized not to fill in the hole with concrete, but to find ways to make pools, to to use your metaphor.
1: Privacy, this is important, and I probably should have started with this, is if Mm. you define privacy as secrecy, you're Mm. kind of, um, I think this is a technical legal term, screwed. (laughs) If you define privacy as the authorized processing of personal Mm. data and personally identifiable data, according to moral, legal, ethical, and commercially viable constructs, Mm. that's a functional definition that actually promotes sharing. And so analytics people, their biggest plague in AI today is a finding a good use case that actually makes sense to do AI once they found that use case, have they trained the data? And let me tell you, I spent the last year as a CEO of an analytics company. Mm -hmm. Um, the biggest problem for every single one of our customers was data quality. So Mm -hmm. even though you have a lot of data, getting that data, it's, it's called ETL in the trades, you know, transformed Mm -hmm. and clean and ready to be processed for those training databases to work. Now, It comes full circle. If you are looking at privacy engineering and you're looking at the context, the person, the purpose, the reason, the end of life, guess what you're Mm. doing? You're creating a little nugget of quality stack. So Mm. if you have done that on the upfront and you've built in your privacy engineering, not for compliance, but for actual use of data, processing of data in context, Mm. with morality, with ethics, with legal, you know, controls in place, you suddenly have a very clean stack. And so what you're Mm. doing is not cutting down on the big data or the analytics, but you're amplifying the ability to get at the real results that are not biased Mm. by a bunch of goo.
0: Mm. Mm. Interesting. That's
1: the technical term, goo. Uh,
0: Goo, yes. So Michelle, what do you think are the biggest barriers for data privacy compliance that are faced by government agencies, corporations, and other organizations? And are those barriers ubiquitous or do they tend to be specific to the organization type? For instance, government agencies have a completely different set of challenges than say corporations. How would you characterize those?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I I think I think we finally at least people the word privacy is on people's lips you know my first Mm -hmm. boss in privacy was scott McNeely, who said you have zero privacy get over it and Mm -hmm. and that's actually how i got the job because no grown-up wanted it you know Mm -hmm. who would want to do something for your ceo that he says is garbage now i mean and scott was on the board of drugway my my uh my past company my analytics Mm -hmm. company so we're still friends. He's still wrong, um, because <laughs> privacy, if it's defined appropriately, is something that is a huge utility on the balance sheet for corporations. I think on the, on the public company side, you're so busy reporting, if you're reporting at all, you're reporting on activity and security monitoring and threat. There are no CPOs sitting on public boards today. There's almost no CPO sitting directly under the CEO to say, here is the strategy, not legal team, important. IT team, super important. Mm. If you're a company like Target, who's been tagged again and again, Mm. sometimes by criminals, but sometimes you've shot yourself in the foot and you just are reloading quickly, Mm. having strategic mindset of what kind of information feeds your business, what kind of insights about customers are not Mm -hmm. creepy, what kinds of growth in what kind of community, what kind of trust exists in a German Hamlet versus a a town in Alabama versus a place in Northern California. All three Mm -hmm. of these things have very different appetites for sharing information and the intimacy they want to have with a government versus Mm -hmm. a private. Now in the governments, I think, and, and that, well, I'll say this is, this is for both, but if you look at, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big follow the money kind of gal. Mm-hmm. How big are those teams for privacy and data strategy? How big are their budgets to buy the appropriate tools how powerful are there to, you know, from a stature perspective? And you mm-hmm. really look at the data and you start to find, you know, even in these big companies, you'll have a CPO with maybe five people and you'll have mm-hmm. a CISO and a, and a CIO with thousands of people. Getting your voice heard strategically, being present and just being physically capable to cover all the issues when you're mm-hmm. not really giving appropriate oxygen to it, this emerging issue, you're gonna get the natural results. You're gonna instead prioritize and hit the highest things that are probably gonna hit your shareholder first. And by the time you get to your poor employees, it's really good because, you know, lucky them. But it's really, really tough um, to to do something strategically with no strategic vision. And I think that's been our really, a, a big handicap across the industry for a very long time.
0: Yeah, and I, th- you know, I'm recalling to mind. I think some of the interviews and, and discussions I did back in 2018 when GDPR was coming up, and I, I talked to folks such as yourself and various privacy officers. It seemed that what you would the characteristic that you kind of see across like the corporate landscape is that when it came to data privacy, a lot of companies took an approach. It was that it was reactionary. That it was like dealing with the problem, like. Oh, now we've got a problem. We've been breached. We've been hacked, and now we have to, as opposed to taking that more strategic, preventative mindset of getting in front of it, making sure that the the chief privacy officer or whoever that design is had the tools and the. Uh, Investments, resources that they needed to be able to properly insulate the company on the front end. And instead, it was cleanup and dealing with all of that kind of mess. So,
1: if you look at your metrics as sales and marketing are great evidence of mm. privacy in action, if you look at your good hiring and keeping top talent as curating the personal careers of individual people as a privacy momentum, you start to see how strategic this issue really is. And it's been hidden under the covers for a long time.
0: Mm. So Daryl, kind of, kind of bringing this around full circle, you know, do you think that there will be greater cooperation between governments and corporations in sharing, in the act of sharing data? And how do you see that taking shape in the next several years?
2: Sure. Yeah, I I, I do think there will be greater cooperation. I think we're actually starting to see some of that uh, already, Mm -hmm. especially as a result of the pandemic. But, you know, you know, well sticking with the pandemic so for example you know uh, what what we've what we've seen especially across Europe is the the governments need to work with private corporations because oftentimes that's where the data is right so uh, again going back to the example of contact tracing using an average uh, citizen's cell phone that data is not currently with the government that data is currently you know by some held by some private company that can provide that type of information if the government's interested in it. So we've seen a very interesting difference in approach from European regulators and working with private industry, I think, to tap into that type of contact tracing uh, and with different levels of success. But what's interesting is, I I think it's gonna have to happen because the the government holds a certain amount of personal data, but I think (laughs) frankly, the, the you know there's a reason there are large corporations now right that that specialize in amassing significant amounts of personal data that is you know the current currency mm-hmm. right personal data understanding people their interests their consumer you know consumer practices their locations that data we've we we now know is just highly highly valuable and obviously mm-hmm. the the trick is figuring out the right balance of, of 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 how we use it and whether it's anonymization or whatever it may be. Um, but yeah, and again, going back to the Apple and Google collaboration, that is clearly being developed uh, for the purpose of potential government use. So I think that's, an, again, another great example of how we're seeing this come to fruition, right? The government's need for a certain type of data and private industry's ability to, to share that data, but in a way that they also feel is, is honoring the, the privacy of their, of their consumer base.
0: Yeah, and it's, you know, I mean, it, it more and more, you know, you, you're seeing and hearing discussions where, you know, data, it, you know, consumers, you are the product, right? Your right. personal data is, that's the product. And, you know, so then, interestingly, you know, there are voices out there that say that, you know, they're pushing for monetization of personal data. So that, that might be a way to safeguard like my own personal data is I get a cut of the action, you know, mm-hmm. so it's, you can't just go out and collect that on me and use it for your own purposes without remunerating me in some way. And that, that might be a mechanism for, you know, keeping all the players honest as it were. Well, at work, I, I don't know. And, you know, so time will sure. tell, but. Um so Daryl with regards to you know so we talked about government to corporate uh kind of relationship there what about regards to corporation to corporation data sharing like you alluded to at Google and Apple for instance you see that becoming more prevalent and you know what are the risks and mitigations there
2: Yeah and again I think the Apple Google collaboration is a great example of this uh corporation to corporation sharing I think you know that that's a really interesting question because you know these are still for-profit entities right so these companies Mm -hmm. still do have very selfish reasons to hold on to data that gives them some kind of commercial um, benefit so Mm -hmm. the 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 apple google collaboration i think is in a lot of ways unique i'll have Mm -hmm. to be honest i don't really know if i see a lot of growth in a corporate-to-corporate sharing environment, unless there is a way that the underlying data could truly be anonymized in some way, or at least you know, de-identified to the point where the average consumer is gonna be comfortable with that type of sharing of data, right? Mm-hmm. So, but but generally speaking, you know, and, and part of the, the purpose of these privacy laws is, if a company is processing someone's personal data, you know, what one of the key components or principle of these laws is that we, you know, we as a company are only entitled to process that data for a very limited purpose, right? And we really are not supposed to then share that personal data with other entities, uh, you know, even if it is for, you know, potential big data sets, you know, that may help analyze whether it's health industry, information or, you know, help to help to, you know, a, a cure for cancer, like, you know, what I mean, like that data, when it's entrusted to us, we, we actually have very strict requirements on what we can do with it. So, so the laws right now, in a lot of ways, kind of tie our hands in the ability to share it. So, so if we're really talking about personal data sharing between corporations, there would have to be, I think, a legal shift in how those laws operate. Because right now the intent is you don't share that data, right? Now, it'd be a whole other discussion like Michelle said if we're really talking about true anonymization. What's interesting, Paul, is that these laws typically say if it's anonymized data, it's no longer personal data, right? It's only personal data if I can directly tie it to an individual. But if I take your data, Paul, and I anonymize it and I no longer know it's about you, I can then that, – that then removes, I should say, that data from the regulatory requirement of what I have to do with it or what I can do with it. So that opens up a whole other realm of you know, big data use and how you could share it among corporations.
0: How do you foresee differences in data protections between nations being worked out, especially in light of potential health-related data exchanges? You know, for instance, think of transatlantic airline passengers traveling from Europe to the U.S.
1: The issue is is really tricky because the the problem at hand is can a private actor provide enough um, obfuscation processes controls such that a government cannot overly intrude on information for people present in the European Union to that the. The standards of adequacy, and and until we have a different rule on the on the cybersecurity and surveillance laws, I think we're going to continue to see this this challenge be validated for the U.S. and the EU. I don't see another Privacy Shield replacing it that that doesn't somehow figure out how do we get. Through this issue, because there are simply things as a private citizen you're not in control of. If you receive a FISA court subpoena, you must answer it. You're, you know, you're covered by that law, and there's not a lot you can do about it. What you can do is have less and less of the ingredients to make it an inefficient search for the government and that's sort of the cat-and-mouse game that folks play and they say well we don't have the encryption key only the user does so all we see is a lump of encrypted data and therefore even if I give this information to the government it won't be useful for any sort of a forensic sort of review so I think we're going to continue to see that Even the binding corporate rules, which is another valid mechanism to transfer information between the U.S. and the European community, we still are under the jurisdiction of a government with with this type of uh, surveillance and and security, cybersecurity laws. So we've got that, and we've got uh, contracts. You can do individual contracts to transfer information to and from. The interesting thing as a practitioner in this field for many years is um, the amount of folks that will say things like, oh my gosh, Shrems 2 happened, which is the sort of nickname of that privacy shield disillusion agreement by the court of justice. Oh my gosh, we don't have the privacy shield anymore. What am I gonna do about my call centers in India? Mm-hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, we have not annexed India. India is not part of the United States. Mm-hmm. It's that ever been part of that agreement. Mm-hmm. So if you were transferring information into processing centers between the European community and elsewhere, you already had the obligation to have the legal basis to process in the first place and then a legal mechanism to transfer. It's a two-step process. If we had this interview in 2000, I would have told you, and I think I did tell someone with a surety, that by the year 2020, we would have enough international digital treaties that we would protect both human rights and commerce. That Mm -hmm. seems like a fantasy dream, but it still is indeed, I think, the slow path that we've got to take forward because Mm -hmm. the balkanization of data sets into localities is not going to enhance individual liberties. It's not going to enhance the security of this data. It's not going to stop the hackers who don't care about the laws. Um, so we have to find a way to have an above-the-board safe passage, as we do with uh, space law, admiralty law, water law, You know, other sorts of international cooperations. And, and unfortunately, we're not quite in the moment of history where we're all going to sit down at the UN or some other body and, and hash this out quite yet. So for now, I think we've got to take these and, and thoughtful. The context has to be a local context, even understanding that the the actual substructure of processing, particularly if you have 24 by 7 services, it is global. It's not just US and, and Europe. It's not US and Canada. It's not US and Brazil a lot of these these networks are really spread out across and under many oceans uh, where there's a lot of international space. So from a conflicts of law perspective, I I just gave a talk at Santa Clara Law yesterday, I said, kids, take conflicts of law, we're gonna continue to see this collision again and again, and no one practitioner, this is why this privacy can't just sit in your legal department, no one practitioner is licensed in every jurisdiction that you need to understand so you have to have an, a network of advice and that's where strategy comes along just like g for our companies going forward even with currency flux and different tax rules and laws when you when you sit above that and you say what is our overall objective then you figure out how do we do this jurisdictionally if you instead started with there's so many different tax laws you would never form a business in the first place so it's some of this is a mind shift for how we're going to lead our way through this some of this is a legal. Evolution, where we're going to get to more and more of these common planes of title and what is truly local and cultural and needs to be protected as such. So we're in the beginning days here. It's um, it's an exciting time. If, if you're a legal scholar or a technical person or just a business strategist, uh, privacy is the game.
2: And Paul, to add to that, I think Michelle, I think your comment about um, you know the Admiralty law analogy or you know international tax law analogy. Uh, That's, I think that's spot on. I think what's interesting about the privacy practice right now, you know, it's still very much in its infancy, right? So admiralty law has hundreds of years, right, of legal precedent to rely upon, whereas privacy is still, is still very much, you know, a a new legal concept. And obviously, we just have a highly fractured international environment where different countries are just now implementing their own privacy laws, right? So it's just going to take a while again, for this great experiment to kind of, you know, bake a little bit and then, and then I think we will see, um, you know, uh, greater consolidation and, and uniformity.